Hey guys, welcome back to Teacher's Pet Podcast. This is your host, Trey Kabler. Uh, thank you guys for listening again today. Uh, we put out three new episodes uh, last week, so make sure you guys go give those a listen. Um, beyond this episode, it looks like we're going to have a couple of potential people running for uh, to be the new superintendent of Oklahoma Public Schools here in the next couple of years. So make sure you guys are keeping up. I am equally excited um, for our guest today. Uh, a couple weeks back, we had on Forrest Bennett, and uh, he's been kind enough to set me up with some of his colleagues that have also uh, been teachers, but they're also really interested in talking about education and politics. Uh, our guest today is uh, Representative Jacob Rosencrantz. Uh, would you uh, like to talk a little bit about who you are and what you do? Sure. Yeah. First of all, it's, it's Rosecrans, and that's okay. That's oh all I'm good. Sorry. No, no, no. Hey, even at the Capitol, they <laughs> they add that extra. And originally, it's Rosencrans, and you know what? It all means the same thing. It's a Catholic name. It means Holy Rosary. We'll take it. But no. Um. Yeah. A little bit about me. I uh, was a teacher. That's what got me involved in politics. To be honest with you. About a year after I became a teacher in um, North, uh, North, Southwest Oklahoma City, I. Uh, well, I saw all the things that everybody was seeing around that time, around 2012, uh, mostly underfunding and those types of things. And it created in me a, a want to do uh, to, to bring my voice for teachers to a higher level because I was an activist already and I was trying to work as hard as I could. I went to the couple of different the walkouts, you know, the one previous to the big one. And um, that's what drove me to actually run for office in 2016, um, which I did not win. However, uh, I got to run a race where I got my name out there and the guy who beat me um, resigned after I beat him or after he beat me. So I just simply kept on <laughs> running from 2016 to 2017. And uh, I won a, a special election and that got me in the house. Um, I've had many elections since then. They don't really stop. I'm in a uh, purple district, a 60, 40 Republican split. So I'm the first Democrat here since, ooh, since I was in middle school in the nineties, early nineties. So it's a, kind of a big deal when I won. And my my biggest passion, obviously, uh, is education policy, but really mostly uh, anything to protect and strengthen our public schools, fight against the bad stuff, which is voucher, things like that, and um, uh, and protecting, really just fighting for our teachers. Uh, that's what I'm here for. That's what I've been doing this whole time. I have two kids. Uh, they go to public schools out here in Norman. Um, I'm a public school aficionado, warrior, whatever you want to call it. And uh, that's just a little bit about me. Yeah, pretty much everything goes through public education with me. That's my passion. It's the bill I got passed has to do with that and so on and so forth. But I'm here to answer any questions you may have or whatever else you need me to go into. Awesome. Well, thank you for hopping on here today. Um, I know I was student teaching during the big walkout. Um, so that was a fun experience. I've had a great three first years of teaching. There's been a walkout, um, year and a half has been marred by the pandemic. So I feel like it can only go up from here. Um, I don't know after, after the big CRT thing, buddy. Um, I'll, I'll speak to that, but anyway, go ahead. Oh, we're going to get into that. Don't worry. Um, because I, uh, yeah, you shared a post the other day that I want to talk about for sure. Cause I think it was excellent. Um, what did you teach whenever you were uh, still in the classroom? Yeah, I taught, I started with um, geography. I'm actually a history major, alternatively certified um, history lover, but nothing was open for history teachers at that time, back before there was this massive teacher, <laughs> like Exodus. Now you can get a job, you know, wherever. But back then I couldn't find a job because I was alternatively certified and didn't have any um, experience. So I ended up going to Oklahoma City uh, Public Schools, like kind of on a whim, I was trying to get a job within Norman where I live, but couldn't find one. And so I taught geography at first, uh, sixth grade, then uh, seventh grade geography, and then 10th grade world history, and then back to seventh grade geography and eighth grade history. So pretty much social studies within middle school uh, and with world history in uh, 10th grade. Mm. Yeah, I, I teach ELA. Um, and, you know, I always... I really, honestly, I keep saying this, but you know, we're not we're not to that point yet. I wish that they taught English and history a lot of times as, as more of a seminar course, or that there was a lot more interdisciplinary uh, communication between those two things because they're so indelibly intertwined. Um, 
and they're and they're so related in how they how you're supposed to teach kids to think about them. Um, why why was history so important to you? What about it? Well, I guess I mean I started out really being a geography lover first. It was maps with me. Um, we took road trips instead of plane trips when I was a kid. And my dad would just throw me the map. I'm sure other people told this, told this story about why they love it. Um, and I was the one that was supposed to try to figure our way out through, you know, looking at atlases. And so that created that love in me at a very young age. And then, you know, I went up from there. And then as soon as you start really digging into geography, you get into the history of people. And that started getting me involved there. And I just became a nerd, man. And then, of course, every history teacher will tell you this. Once you really get into the conflicts and why they start and all that that's kind of the the ball that gets it all rolling and you know i became a voracious reader of not just world war ii but world war one but not just from the american perspective american german japanese i became a, a it was it never stopped and so that burning desire of me to learn and i was a bad kid back in school too because i thought i knew more than all the teachers and all that good stuff and just you can kind of tell i'm a little hyperactive and i just all that was just going into the wrong places. Once I really dug in, that's when I started realizing, okay, this is what I really want to do. So I went to OU or OCCC at first, became a tutor for some stuff. And that's one of the reasons why I decided to become a teacher too, because I like tutoring. Went to OU, had some great professors and had some uh, specifically Dr. Rufus Fears, which was freedom in Rome, freedom in Greece, the best. And uh, he, he directed me to where I needed to be because at first I wanted to be a professor. And he was like, no, 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 no. With your energy level, buddy, you're going to the classroom. <laughs> and so he he helped me understand that. And, uh, you know, he was probably one of the most influential uh, teachers I've had. Uh, he is a legend. Um, I I never, ever had him as a teacher. I think he was – he might have been passed away by the time I went to college even. But uh, his entire lecture series from both those classes are still up on the OU library. And I had older people in my life that just talked about his his class and just how mesmerizing it was. Totally and, mesmerizing, and it's definitely uh, a major reason why I decided to go to the classroom. Uh, again, the nerd in me was there. The love of history was there. But what I was going to do with that wasn't there until he saw pretty quick. I mean, I decided to have a one-on-one -on -one with him. It's tough because he's a very popular guy and he's very busy, but um, – multiple one-on-ones had led him to believe that I would just be so much better as a teacher. And he even said middle school, he was like, listen, you've got this energy that is needed in our public schools and, and you got to get out there and they need you badly. And so that led me to get my alternative certification and uh, become a teacher. Mm. Before we get into policy, I want to talk about your time in the classroom because I think that that's really, it informs so much about who we are and also what you do after you're in the classroom. Um, you know, history is one of those subjects. This is just my generalized experience. Um, history teachers are usually one of two ways. Um, they're either very disinterested um, because they have to have a teaching job to fulfill another role in the building, uh, or they, they're like you. How do you get kids, uh, how did you get kids to engage in a subject like history where kids might not like it as much? It's a weird story, to be honest with you. Um, my passion was world history. Um, I have a history major with a, a minor in classical cultures. And um, so that's where my real passion was. The problem is with the education system that I walked into to start teaching is that it's really, really hard to teach your passion. And what I mean by that is that I cared so darn much about what I was teaching that I would get frustrated when the kids didn't show that same kind of excitement. And of course they did not at first, especially as a first year teacher. And that's one of the reasons why I was drawn to geography. I didn't, I, I, I had a love for geography, but I didn't have that fanatical, just like, oh, it's amazing. It's more, I can break it down. There it is. And you can make it a little more exciting for the kids. You can like, well, Southwest Oklahoma City, I had mostly, um, oh, 85% uh, people from Mexico, kids from Mexico. And I wanted them to learn about their own country and our country. And so what I ended up doing was you know all sorts of projects without really knowing what I was doing. You see what I'm saying? I was a brand new teacher, but I knew that I wasn't just gonna sit and uh, have them sit in their desks. Didn't know what I was doing. Classroom management was all over the board, but some of it really worked. And 
I still get those kids from my sixth grade class my first year who have since graduated that reach out to me. They're like, man, you were the best. And that was just one year, right? So, um, yeah, it, it basically, it, it, was, it was tough because the frustration level was so high when I was teaching world history and, and high school that it really didn't stick with it, even though that was my passion. Um, and then the passion switched once I saw how, after you know, three years teaching, you get better at it, how to engage kids. And that became my biggest thing. Get them out of their desks. Have them doing things. And a lot of them were even frustrated with that because they were so used to doing all the other stuff, sitting in their desk, putting their earbuds in and reading out of a textbook, which all other history classes did, that my class was A, a break, and B, a place to kind of let loose. And we did. We let loose. I wanted education or their education to be, the, in my classroom, the best part of their day. Um, and so it turned into more than just a classroom, too, man. I became, as you well know, most teachers know this, you wear the teacher hat, you wear the parent hat, you wear the um, the counselor hat or the, the whatever else hat you need to wear. And these classes were way overcrowded. Um, I'm talking my biggest class, seventh grade, was 47 kids, yeah. which is almost just an intensely insane. However, I'm an intensely insane human being, and it really worked out <laughs> where I, I stuck around. Now, you notice I kind of flopped around my different jobs. It wasn't because I was getting fired or in trouble. It was because I was trying to find my school home. Um, and my driving force was to try to get back to Norman to teach, but I fell in love with the uh, communities in which I started teaching, which is um, uh, Hispanic community. Um, just fell in love. And I wanted to teach there for as long as I could until I ran for office and won, which I never thought I was going to win. Again, Democrat hadn't won down here in forever, and we didn't have the money for polls. So when it happened, it was very, 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 very emotional because all my students were like, yeah, you're not going to win, buddy. <laughs> and <then> I won. <laughs> so I had to go in. And it was a special election and a special session, which was called instantaneously. So I had to go from teaching Yorktown in eighth grade history straight to the Capitol. And it was it was awful. I'll never forget it because the kids were just like, you won? What are you? Are you leaving? I was like, yeah. Usually, you know, you'll get a, a Christmas break to like get ready. Nope. I had to leave directly after I won. And I won on September 12th and had to be out at the Capitol like within a week. So whew, that was a long story, but yeah, no, it's a, it's a thing, man. It's a thing. That's a wild ride. I completely get that. Yeah. You're talking about, I, I relate. I think I might be a little bit more laid back than you. I can't really tell, but in the classroom, I am. I'm, I'm pretty laid back, brother. I, I don't want these kids to be, to be um, stressed out in any way, shape or form. And I want to reach them at their level to do that. I say most teachers are, are sponges or mirrors. If you go in under duress, you've got a frown on your face, you're on a bad day, that gets directed directly back to you by the kids. I learned that real quick. So I'm not saying be fake nice, be who you are, but try to keep it positive for these kiddos because it may be the best part of their day. That's that's where I went from. And so I was pretty chill to the extent where I could be. And then my punishment, no punishment, my, uh, my I guess, discipline was based on the class behavior itself. So people would kind of – fall in and they would end up policing themselves. And of course that took some time, but once that got going, it was like magic. Yeah, no, I was, I was more referring to the, uh, the energy cause you, you have a, an intense energy even over video, but I, I don't know about you. I like, I like chaos a little bit more in the classroom. I don't like that just normal order where it's all quiet and everything. Cause I don't, I think most kids are extremely bored by that, but also just not engaged. Um, like you might remember the lesson might bomb, but a kid's going to remember whenever you do something that's completely out of the ordinary for them. And they might take something away from it. Even if you don't think that, uh, that you did your job very well sometimes. Um, so which is more frustrating being a public school teacher in Oklahoma or being a representative, uh, in Oklahoma. I get asked that question a bunch. It's, it's nuanced as everything else is, but, um, I will tell you, first of all, the most difficult job I've ever had in my life is being a teacher. Um, you're on the kind of the bottom rung and the front lines of, of, of the most important job in, in the world. Um, being a representative, it's tough. You know, I've got uh, 40,000 constituents, all who, I mean, not all of them agree with me and some are louder than the others. Um, and if you're doing your job well, you're on call 24-7. But the big difference is, I'd say, is that it's like owning a small business. You get out whatever you put in. Um, 
this is not an eight to five job. I could sleep in all day if I so choose. And that's why I always tell people, hey, be careful about who you elect because um, it's there's no there's nobody watching us do what we're doing. It's all about making sure that you get a person who is going to work hard and has a heart of a servant, so on and so forth. So it's much easier with my scheduling um, as a state representative, but it really never ends. Teaching, you could kind of turn it off whenever, you know, go home. Kind of. Not really, because let's be honest, grading papers, stuff like that. Teaching is, without a doubt, the most difficult job I've ever had. Probably the most difficult job I ever will have, but also the most rewarding, even more so than uh, being a state representative. Well, that's awesome to hear. Um, you know, I always, anytime I talk to Forrest, it's like, uh, I feel like we're both just venting to each other half the times uh, because, you know, this this state in general, we're getting into more of the policy stuff now. Um, the governor said whenever he got elected, you know, he wants to make Oklahoma a top 10 state, whatever, you know, whatever that means. Um, and that always starts with education, right? Is that whenever you have an educated populace, um, you can move forward and change things and do awesome stuff. Uh, however, ever since he's been in office, um, really the last probably most of my lifetime, 26 years, Oklahoma has been taking away funding from schools. Um, they fought tooth and nail to not give teachers pay raises and other necessary things. Um, what is the general state of education policy in Oklahoma currently in your mind? Smoke and mirrors, my friend. Smoke and mirrors. We have a majority, uh, Republican majority, let's not hide the word. That's what it is here. There's 19 Democrats in the House. There's nine in the Senate. We have no control over policy. We can kind of kill bad things still, and we can definitely make uh, partnerships and relationships. That's really what the key is for us here. Um, to, to once again, keep some bad stuff off the, the floor. But for all intents and purposes, we, we don't get to do that. So it is a one-party ruled state, straight up. And um, it's a one-party, it's an interesting deal. It really is. You do have some moderates within the House and the Senate, but because the base is so not moderate, they, as soon as they get to the Capitol, also their votes turn into exactly what you think they would turn into. And it's sad because a lot of these folks really are truly moderate Republicans who were elected right after teacher walkout um, to be pro-education champions. And honestly, their votes haven't shown that by and large. Um, so, but what you're gonna see, if you talk to anybody who's up in that level, this is the best, most money we've ever put into education, blah, blah, blah. Look at this, your money follows the kids now, uh, so on and so forth. And I'm sorry, it's all smoke and mirrors. It doesn't do anything to stop the teacher exodus. It doesn't do. It doesn't. It doesn't appreciate the fact that we were underfunded so much uh, before the funding increases that it hasn't even brought us back up to to pre-recession levels. Um, it takes doesn't take into account the seven hundred thousand plus kids that are in our schools and enrolled in public schools. Um, our per pupil average is the lowest in the region. Doesn't, no one talks about that. And that and that to get it where it needs to be to top in the regions like. $753 million, <laughs> I mean, it's bad. And, and that's just the last number I remember. So smoke and mirrors is where we're at here, brother. It's, 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 it's magic. It's saying things that are happening that aren't happening. Um, and then also ignoring things that do need to happen. And the ideas are there, man. We have policy ideas that are by and large being ignored. Um, or we give them to our, our conservative counterparts over on the other side of the aisle and they don't, say they don't have like the same verve or passion for them so they don't get hurt so i don't know man um it's it's extremely frustrating right now because you talk to anybody on that side of the aisle it is the best best state for education in the history of education since the history of forever and it's their job to do that that's what i guess what politicians are used to doing i'm just more of a pragmatist and uh i want to make sure people understand exactly what's going on and right now I'm sorry, but education's still under fire. Teachers are still being ignored, flat out. The teacher walkout, amazing as it was, didn't lead to much difference. We're back where we're about where we began. We have such a massive majority of Republicans that they were able to pass a tax cut, um, which is only going to hurt public schools and other state-funded uh, state services. So is it all doom and gloom? No, <laughs> but 
but it's not as great as what people are saying. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, with that most recent tax cut, correct me if I'm wrong, essentially all the new funding that was built up for schools during the walkout is, is basically gone. Um, yeah, I mean, we have one-time funds from, you know, federal and COVID and all that, but that's one-time funds and it'll be gone. So it's flush compared to what it has been, but it's almost like the, the folks that are, are in power are like, well, we're flush now. Let's go right back to where we were in the first place, cut taxes, so on and so forth, which if they had any kind of foresight, and I hope they're, I hope they're wrong, or I hope I'm wrong, if they had any kind of foresight, it's going to put us right back in the same position. And I, again, pray that I'm wrong because we're going to have the same issues, if not worse, down the road. Well, if it gets to that situation again, um, we already have uh, such a massive teacher shortfall in this state. Um, if it gets to that point again, I'm not sure how how the state's going to get back from that. Um, you'll have an entire generation of kids that have been horribly underserved. Um, it's rare, It's really interesting to see whenever you look at student outcomes in this state, considering everything. Um, we're doing all right, but that's solely because there's so many teachers who are so committed to basically helping their home. Um, but that's not sustainable. You can't sustain that for generation after generation. And it's starting to get to that point. Um, you, I, I have a bad habit of being really negative on here sometimes. So I want to talk about policy things that you guys are putting forward that are being ignored that you think can help. Yeah. Well, the number one thing, um, we have a nice little education um, policy caucus, uh, policy group, Democratic, it's a long word, Democratic caucus education policy group. Um, five of us are former educators. Uh, I think there's four now because we lost one. Um, and, and our ideas are legit. And we've teamed up with the former educators across the aisle to really start banging home some ideas here. Um, unfortunately, because of the nature of partisanism, we've kind of lost our way along the other side of the aisle. I don't know why they're just not showing to meetings and stuff like that. But um, because of that, we have this this brain, this 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 team think, if you will, of policy ideas. And the number one idea I see that keeps getting kind of pushed away is ending the A to F report card. Um, because hey, let's be honest, it all kind of stems from that. Honestly, if you are under stress or you know, it, it's it's because honestly because you're you're probably your administrators under stress because you guys have a C or a D or an F and that's not going to change. And it also is not helpful in any way, shape or form to show anything except for the fact that your school's underfunded and you're probably in a inner city or, or a tough to staff school district. So that's been the number one thing and it has no chance. It, it, it doesn't even get heard. The State Department of Education's against it, but that's a big piece right there that I think if we could just revamp that, just change it from A to F, just simplify it. Um, or even go back to where it was in the first place to where it's not just like this, this, uh, this quick idea of just like, boom, you fail. Um, little things like that, or just do what other states do that we could really make, uh, uh, some, 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 some headway with that, but that has no chance, at least not with this current superintendent. Um, uh, also I would say that, uh, some of the teacher retention ideas, uh, specifically from representative Waldron and representative, uh, Provenzano have not been heard. Um, and, and also Representative Kerry Hicks, or Senator Kerry Hicks, who's an amazing education uh, policy person and, and former educator herself. Those things aren't really happening right now in favor of, you know, the, 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 the open transfer deal and, and the opportunity scholarship cap raisers, things that don't help our public schools that are being sold to you that way. I mean, I get negative too when I get really down into it. But um, We've got ideas, man. They're all there. Uh, for me specifically, I've kind of found my way in early childhood education. Um, it's not what I taught, but it became a passion when I noticed my own children uh, were real struggling when they went through, uh, you know, because I, I taught at home. I you know, home taught them before pre-K. They get to the public school deal and they kind of start struggling because they're being forced in front of a screen all day, so on and so forth. So I worked on and passed what's called the play to learn act which i never ever thought was going to be a bill but it grew into a bill and we actually passed it to law now so that's that's kind of my way and, and the way i look at that it's a teacher retention tool too because teachers wrote the bill first of all 
early childhood educators. And I've been told that, especially from perspective educators from UCO and, and, and OU around the state, that they would stay in Oklahoma rather than go to Texas or somewhere else if we had a law that protected them, which is so sad, to be able to teach the way they know they that, that kids learn, um, which this basically has turned into. So teacher retention piece right there, it, it got a lot of coverage, but a lot of people are like, well, that's not a huge thing. Actually kind of was um, because it actually is a law that, that empowers teachers to use play in their classroom the way that you or I had our teachers using it. I went to a Catholic school in kindergarten that was a play-based Catholic school, so I have that inside me as well. So, man, we've got the ideas. They're just not being thrown out there, and I don't know if it's because we have a D by our name or they cost money or whatever else, but we'll uh, we'll keep working. We'll keep hammering down on it. Yeah, you brought up a lot of good stuff there. Um, your play act, I before you know, I even contacted you about that, that was something that had caught my eye because I was like, that's just – it's great, right? Um, throughout the years, it's it's really weird, right? Because we start kids off um, at a young age with a lot of playtime. They some places they have a time to rest in the middle of the day, like a nap time and all this other stuff. And progressively, as you get older and older, that just goes out the window. And in reality, those older kids need it just as much as the younger kids. Um, I've been a I've been an advocate of saying that every school should set aside time for especially their high school students to just not be in the classroom and doing something um whatever that might be our school what we've started doing is we have an hour-long advisory period in the morning where kids are free to go to any teacher's room they want and every teacher has some kind of club or activity going on um and it's a great way to start our day uh it really gets kids engaged you're talking about things like the open transfer rule um that's one that's getting not a lot of attention, but is has potential to really hurt a lot of school districts here in the coming couple of years because so many kids are not going to be able to leave a district that they might want to leave. They just don't simply have the ability to. But Forrest made a really good point recently that just because you send a kid out of a district, that doesn't fix the district, right? School districts are a result of a lot of factors throughout history and everything else that affect their socioeconomic status, whatever it might be. And you're just ignoring a problem that is going to have to get fixed down the road. Um, so I'm glad that you brought that up. I want to shift gears a little bit because I want to get into the thing I know you wanted to talk about. Um, Dr. Cox is one of the people who is going to be running for superintendent here in the next uh, year and a half. Um, he's somebody that hopefully we're going to get on the podcast. Uh, and I recently started following his campaign and everything else. And um, the other day he made a statement through social media discussing CRT in Oklahoma schools. Um, and it really made a lot of people mad that were following him because you would think that he'd be kind of going the opposite direction. You made an excellent post on social media the other day, essentially saying that everything regarding CRT has become a culture war issue and then it's fear-mongering. Can you explain what you mean by that to the people that might not have a full understanding of CRT, um, how it affects education or doesn't affect education, and why they should drop it? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, there's a lot to unpack there. Uh, first of all, let's talk about John Cox. Now, I know him pretty well. When he was a Democrat, uh, I obviously voted for him. You know what I'm saying? And not only that, uh, I was told you I was an activist when I became a teacher. Mm -hmm. And that meant I was a badass teacher. If you don't know what that is, that's kind of an offshoot of, uh, of some of the unions. They're a little more, uh, little more active, I guess you could say, than some of the unions. And he was a member too. And so I know down deep, down deep, he is very, 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 um, I would say staunch public education warrior. Um, but he changed his affiliation and you can't necessarily blame him. He's out in the boonies, you know what I mean? And like I said, I'm on this furthest South Democrat there is and I live in Norman. So <laughs> you really, you can't necessarily blame the guy. But when we get into what, what really got me involved so loudly with the CRT, because I mean, obviously I voted against it and we asked questions against this, um, was this, I guess, this victory lap that some of my colleagues were taking on the rules being passed uh, to, to implement 
a bill that I literally think that we don't need, which is House Bill 1775, which the reason why we don't need it, it's because it's supposed to be an anti-CRT bill. But if you look at it, it's such a slippery slope. It's really bad for the teaching of history, especially. But let's go back to what CRT really is. Man, if you dig deep, you're going to find all sorts of interpretations. It's a theory for crying out loud. So all sorts of people say all sorts of different things. What it basically comes down to is that it is looking at racism, not as an individual type idea, but as a systemic idea throughout history, which is 100% true. And honestly, it's kind of the way that we've taught it. But I guess where it got kind of messed up is this, yeah, culture war to where all of a sudden now all white people are a bad guy. Do some people say that? Of course they do. It's out there. You can look it up and find it. You'll see it. Is that some kind of big message that every single school district in the world or in the United States is going to push? Absolutely not. Um, you know as well as I know that many theories are used uh, um, when it comes to teaching kids. This is just another one of those. And But the fear, the fear factor and the fear mongering surrounding this, saying that, oh, white people, you shouldn't be made to feel bad. Hey, listen, we teach critical thinking skills in our history classes. That's what history teachers and English teachers, really most teachers do. Um, and those critical thinking skills should be going to you know these kids to where they decide, if I feel guilty, let's figure out why I feel guilty, so on and so forth, and asking questions, those types of things. No teacher I know at all ever has ever taught that, has ever said, Oh, you're white. You're bad. It's happened. I've had I've had plenty of my my uh, you know people a little more conservative leaning send me little articles from Nevada or whatever else. Blah blah blah. I'm just like, well, listen, that was a teacher's choice. That's not some kind of district wide type idea. Now, also, once you peel back what CRT really is, it's a theory. It's not saying these things, and that's the biggest issue because honestly, we should be looking at history through this lens. Um, that racism is systemic and and but boy if you say that in the classroom now you're in trouble because 1775 specifically prevents teachers from even doing that the other big issue I have with Senate, uh, House Bill 1775 is that it's going to make it uh, to where a child say a child has a problem with you or me all of a sudden they can just say and they're not stupid they can say um, my kid my teacher said that um, all white people are racist in his lesson today well, now that teacher could lose her license off hearsay. So think about all the different angles here that are so bad and so just misguided all because of fear. The fear of, of honestly, this base of people who, Lord, I, 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 I'm flabbergasted by the fact that they don't believe in, in true facts or they believe what, uh, uh, say, a politician will tell them but that politician's driven to make sure they get their base out. So uh, it's just it's just a, a, a continuous cycle, if you will, of fake news um, and fear mongering, and that's become kind of the defining trait of what's going on with uh, very far far right conservative folks. That's where we're at. Uh, yeah, you broke it down great. Um... I've I've been so frustrated because as an English teacher, especially I teach AP literature. So, I mean, you know, you're talking college level English course. Uh, you better be reading texts through multiple different lenses. Right. You better be analyzing things from a, from a place other than yourself. Right. Yeah. I think this idea that that they're trying to say that teachers are indoctrinating. I think they are probably getting that conflated with the idea that we as teachers like to have discussions as a class and break things down, especially with uncomfortable topics. Um, you can't just do that. You have, they have to have the skills to be able to do that first. But now, don't you think some teachers are going to be a little more reluctant to even try that? I, I think so. And that's going to change what they teach just because of, honestly, their fear now of what happened with the fear mongering of CRT, which isn't happening in our schools in the first place. Yeah, once again, that, that idea of a culture war issue of indoctrinating kids, right? Um, really, whenever I hear that, what I hear from the adult that's saying it is that they think kids are too stupid to think for themselves. Um, and I've never, I've never known a teacher ever to tell a student what to think 
um, but they asked some hard questions and they let them figure it out on their own. We, I got, I remember this. So we, with my honors sophomore kids this last year, we were reading the metamorphosis. I don't know if you've read the metamorphosis. Um, it deals with uh, transformation of, of the human soul and everything else. And, but part of that is you have to have a little bit of background knowledge on existentialism, right? And that can be a very tough subject for anyone to talk or think about. But, you know, it can be kind of mashed down into a couple of big, broad questions like, does God exist? Things like that. And I was like, this is going to be a great class discussion in here, right? Because these are still young, younger high school students and they have opinions um, and they're actually pretty decent at at discussing things with each other in a civilized way. But this one poor girl in my class had uh, a student challenged her on a lot of her ideas and she had never been challenged like that. And so at the end of class, she was walking out and she's in tears. And I had to pull her aside and be like, I had another classroom. Luckily, I was like, go in there, relax. It's like, this isn't about destroying anything you believe. But now next time somebody asks you those questions, you've had time to think about it and be prepared. Because nobody else in the world is going to care about that once you're not in this school building or with your parents. Um, yeah, just, I don't know. I had, a, I had a guest on pretty early on that used to work for a lot of campaigns. And he basically talked about how culture war issues are just a massive big distraction from the fact that no policy is actually getting put in place. Um, and that's just so frustrating to watch. Because if you... If you look at the way that a lot of the representatives presenting 1775, they're saying, oh, it's an anti-discrimination bill. You know, we're telling kids that nobody's different than anybody else. And you can't blame people who aren't going to go dig in and read what it actually says for thinking that. And it's like you said, it's, it's misinformation at best and completely dishonest and misleading it at the worst end of it. Um, and I flip-flop on which one it is a lot of times because I'd like to think that most people are not like that, but the older I get, the more cynical I am. So um, we are starting to kind of get close to an hour, so I want to start kind of getting us to a point where we can wrap up. What – trying to think how to frame this question. What has to change with our education policy in the state of Oklahoma – uh, ASAP for us to stop ourselves from going off the cliff? Well, number one, it's going to be political balance. And that's really tough to hit. But I mean, if you don't have political balance, then that's why good ideas get ignored. Um, whenever you have political balance, good ideas don't get ignored anymore because you can play the political games you have to play. We're not going to hear this bill. You're not going to hear that bill. It's There'll be a lot more uh, working across the aisle. There'll be a lot more... Um, uh, bipartisan bills that pop up and that have co-signers and this, that, and the other. So without political balance, we are at the absolute mercy of one party, straight up. And whatever they think is best for education, that's what's going to be in the forefront. So what can we do to com combat that or to build uh, political balance? Well, <laughs> that's the tough part, my friend, because right now um, – where Oklahoma used to have Democrats in some of the rural areas, there is no rural areas with Democrats uh, representing them anymore, which is, that's turned into now rural versus urban. Now, that's how political balance can be, can be re, I guess, reachieved, is because I think, honestly, a lot of these uh, uh, rural representatives, their towns are dying out, 100%. And some of the things that some of the policies they're, they're, they're passing in the law are hurting their areas. So it's only a matter of time before those people most likely look to live in a bigger city. And once you're in a bigger city, you're, I think a lot of times your ideas tend to go not totally liberal, but more centrist or at least more bipartisan. So I think that's where it can change. But also we must and absolutely must, must, beyond must, get youth to vote. And however it happens, I've done it down here in my district since day one, um, listening to the youth, getting them involved, because a lot of times they're going to be key, keyboard warriors or TikTok warriors, and they're not going to show up to vote. And so that's where the big challenge comes, because if you know as well as I know, if 18 to 35-year-olds vote, 
there is no more conservative United States. There's not. There just it just won't happen anymore. And I think a lot of what I just said is the reason why conservatives in general fight so hard to keep things going this way using fear because I think they see the writing on the wall. Truly, between you and I or the rest of people listening, it's going to change. The United States already has changed. It's just voting patterns have not changed yet. And so that's the first thing is political balance. Secondly, you've got to, uh, uh, it's going gonna, it's gonna to sound weird after saying that, we ha- you have to find people that are willing to work across the aisle. Um, and I am one of those. I know I'm an enigma. I'm the Bernie Sanders chair here in the state, yet I'm also probably one of the most bipartisan Democrats there is. And my district, you know, requires that. But <laughs> it's like, what, how are those two things mixed? Well, the reason why they're mixed is because Bernie talks about how healthcare is a, a human right. Absolutely it is. Um, how uh, there should be no weak links, you know, absolutely there should not be. Um, and these big ideas, you know, kind of FDR type ideas that I believe federally. Now, locally, I'm listening to my constituents and I have to be that person and that's my heart. I have my heart. I, I decide that way. But so I guess that's the next thing is to keep that bipartisan piece up. Don't don't always pick your battles. You know what I'm saying? Don't always just fight, 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 because, yeah, you might make it a, a point in a debate or maybe online, but you're not going to get anywhere with that. Um, so keep the relationships that we've built and build upon that. That's how the Play to Learn Act passed. I couldn't have done that by myself. It had, I don't think I've ever seen this in my time since 2017, two Republican representatives that debated for it on my behalf, on top, you know, against the other Republican representatives that were debating against it. And that took years of building relationships with folks and making sure they understood that it's a, it's a damn good idea and, you know, why it's a good idea. So got to keep that bipartisan piece going um, while at the same time trying to get the youth to vote. I think those are the two biggest ways to change things. Also, lastly, so important, look at the success that the teacher walkout had on the Republican primary. They beat incumbent Republicans. Teachers did. Teachers got out there and beat Republican opponents, uh, incumbents, whoever voted no on the teacher pay raise. That was awesome. It did not carry over to the general election. These folks, they wanted their more moderate Republicans in there, but wouldn't vote for a Democrat. Problem is, they added to the political imbalance, and it has backfired amazingly, as we saw with an actual voucher strengthening, well, backwards voucher strengthening bill that actually passed and was signed by the governor. That doesn't happen if moderates stay moderate and pro-education Republicans stay pro-public education. It doesn't happen. So there you go. And teachers, listen, teachers got to vote, bro. They got to vote, and and they got to vote for their own you know, their own selves. They have to vote for their profession and everything else. If teachers voted as a block, which they do not, then you could start seeing some change. And maybe we'll see it with the uh, with the state uh, superintendent race, although I know of no Democrat who wants to get involved with that whatsoever, I've been asking. Um, so, and that's because honestly, you look at the, you gotta be pragmatic. Statewide is not exactly <laughs> the best area for a Democrat right now. Um, so that's probably why you're not going to see one. So it's going to come down to the Republicans and who's going to be truly the more pro-public education uh, folk out of that. It's going to have a major, major effect on the future of education in here uh, in Oklahoma. Talking about politics, I, I get so frustrated um, because the way the way that I always look at any kind of political candidate is is solely based on the most important issues. Um, and unfortunately in this country, you know, George Washington for all of his massive faults and everything else, uh, wrote a very poignant part and piece about, uh, the danger of political parties. Um, and you know, you can definitely align yourself with groups and things like that. But the fact that there, there are people who would never vote for somebody simply because they have a letter beside their name. And that's just asinine to me in every way possible. Um, well, straight party voting, uh, add that to my list. You got to get rid of straight party voting. You won't even have Democrats, I don't think, even try for the bigger positions until straight party voting is out the door. The problem is with that, it has to be an initiative petition. And I do think, I think you'll see it. I think you'll see that. I think you'll see 
um, legalization of, of, of marijuana, those two big initiatives, I think you'll start seeing them. Um, maybe the uh, uh, bipartisan or nonpartisan um, redistricting committees, something like that you may see. But I think the straight party voting is the number one thing that you have to get rid of. It's only a few states that ever do it. Democrats are the ones that put it in back when they had the majority, God bless them, because um, they thought, okay, let's keep our power. So, so it can be beaten. Problem is, once that shift happens, yes, people are voting just for the letter and nothing else. The reason why I almost lost in 2020 is not because I'm unpopular or I don't do a good job for my constituents. It's because of the straight party voting and the Trump bump. That's all it was. And that's why a lot of our Democrats ended up losing in some of the purple seats as well, not to mention a historic pandemic, which has just wreaked, wreaked havoc on, on normal politics and, and running a campaign and obviously school, uh, public schools and a lot of other issues popped up. Um, defunding the police, things like that have popped up that, that harmed me in my, in my election um, in, in, in a red district. So Whenever you say it like that, I just I, I sit and I look in the mirror and I'm just like, well, I guess my grandkids will be better off because that's a that's about the time frame I, I feel like we're looking at at this point. Um, but yeah, still worth fighting for, obviously. Um, I don't want to put you on the spot too much. Obviously, you're you're public official and everything else. Uh, what do you think so far about the superintendent's race uh, as it stands of yesterday? We had another candidate enter the mix. Yeah, you, know, you can put me on the spot. Um, so I have personal relationships with all three. Um, I'd say that I know uh, Superintendent Cox better than all of them. But uh, uh, Secretary Walters, I know very, very well as well um, through just getting to know him before he was even involved with the governor's office, things like that. Um, he's got some great ideas. Um, I think the biggest thing teachers have that are wary is that uh, Kevin Stitt has proven that he is quite – ambiguous to like overtly hostile towards public schools. So, and, and, and they're kind of intertwined. So that's going to be an interesting, uh, see what he can do to step out from that or lean into it and see if he can get that straight party vote. Um, he's a good guy though. There's nothing wrong with the guy. He's got good ideas. It's just, I think that connection may hurt or help him. We'll see. Um, the Dr. Grace, uh, she's got connections here in Norman. She's the one I don't know the most, but I have contacted her. She's got wonderful ideas. I've talked to my teacher friends in Shawnee where she's a superintendent. And they say she does a wonderful job keeping things, you know, either nonpartisan, which, hey, that's what we really need for, for, for public education and, uh, you know, get politics out. And um, so I'm pretty hopeful for, for her and for, for, uh, for Cox and for Walters. Yeah, there's a, there's a politician's answer for you right there. Listen, I think they bring different things to the table. But again, the different things are, are very interesting. So I guess we'll see. That's, uh, hey, that was a great non-answer. I'm kidding. <laughs> I'm just messing around. No, I, I'm, kind of, I'm kind of the same way. I look at all of them and I, I know generally their platforms and everything else. And I'm interested to see where it goes from here. Um, you know, I don't I don't think Joy Hoffmeister has been a perfect superintendent, but I do think that she has fought for public schools as best she could, given her circumstances. Um, and I, I hope that we build on that and that we don't start going backwards in that leadership role. Uh, last couple issues I want to talk about before we do our little ending piece that we always do. Um Talk a little bit about what you think about what's going on in the Western Heights district. Um, what happened? What What do we need to do to make sure that doesn't happen in other districts? Hire better. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> it comes down. It comes down to that superintendent really not knowing what the heck he's doing. Um, the sad part about it: Western Heights was known before all this as as a kind of a go to district within the city. Um, I'm not really familiar with all the angles. I've talked to teachers, obviously. It's kind of a one-sided story for me, so it's extremely negative. Yeah. Um, but it all comes back down to that superintendent not knowing what the heck he's doing and being, honestly, I wouldn't say criminally negligent, but just like not just not trying, I guess, is the word I'm looking for here. Um, but, yeah, you're going to find me. I'll, I'll word salad you. I don't know enough about it to really just dig into it, um, except for the fact that uh, parents and teachers are extremely happy that it just got taken over. <laughs> Uh, I mean, I would say he was 
criminally negligent, uh, just based on everything I've read so far. How seventy four million dollars, something like that, unaccounted for in their audit. So it's it's pretty know. bad. But again, you can't really say anything without having you know it being criminally negligible. But it looks looks pretty bad. <laughs> Um, yeah, the, I, you know, the big, the big issue, uh, one of my good friends from college, Brianna, she's on the board. She just got elected to the school board over in Western Heights. Um, and so they, you know, they had a board meeting last night and most of the people there are like every single board member needs to resign except for her. Cause she was the only one that was worried about anything. And I just worry because I look at that and I'm like, that's a big district. How do you end up with a school board that just sits there and lets it happen? Um, well, that comes down to elections too. You know that, Trey. Yeah, yeah. Um, it, it, and, and nobody really shows up for school board elections. It's pretty intense. Like seriously, the closer you get, the more important politics should be. You know, municipal, school board, and those are the ones with the lowest turnout. So uh, it, it, that that is endemic to a whole other issue. But um, that's that's how you end up with with board members who either rubber stamp the superintendent, which is more likely than than not. Or um, folks who who bring their political aspirations there and try to push whatever it is, you know, whatever stuff's going on. The, I think it's the head of the head of that school board. Um, I was whenever I was reading about it earlier. I think that there were a total of sixty-eight votes cast in the last election for his seat. Um, with it's just, yeah, um, it, it blows my mind too. It's pretty bad here, even in Norman, which is a woke city. You know what I mean, and. City politics is the big thing these days, but even the turnout for those are just. Yeah. If you listen to Twitter, you guys have the mayor from hell. So, um, <laughs> right. Sarcasm. Um, so yeah. last, last kind of important issue I want to discuss here. Uh, what does, what are, are there any policy plans with regard to the state's connection with Epic charter schools um, to get rid of it? <laughs> well, that's a, that's a tragedy, really, honestly. So we have recognized, and this is across the aisle, this is bipartisan, that there is a lack of accountability um, when it comes to Epic charter schools. I mean, you could say you keep their name out of it because they'll probably see you, whatever, blah, blah. No, it's Epic. Um, other uh, online schools do not have the same issues that Epic has. They don't have the target on their back because they're not aiming to pull from regular public schools. They're aiming to work within, which is what – Lord knows that's what we need. There are kids out there, you know as well as I know, that learn better by themselves online, but it's a small amount. It's certainly not 35,000 children. Um, and uh, so, yeah, I mean, accountability is missing. Now, what's happened here? It looks bad still. It looks like they've, you know, if you listen to the, um, to the auditor's report, which I did twice, it's damning. But they're getting away with a lot of things here because I think, A, they donate a lot of money to some movers and shakers. Um, and, you know, that's going to make you a little bit more reluctant to do anything about it. And a lot of lip service is happening there, too. Oh, well, we need to do something about this. Oh, this must happen. And then it comes down to, you know, put the rubber to the road, which means legislation. And we had legislation to do so under my colleague, uh, Sheila Dills, Representative Dills. And it never got heard. Never got heard. And it was swept under the rug. And just that's all there was to it. And why? Regular folks were asking for more accountability or asking for these things. And she had a bill ready to roll. And it never got heard. So, um, yeah, there's some big issues there still. I, I have to kind of – I, I got to tell you, I am – I have a lot of former teachers who, who were, were, uh, were brick-and-mortar teachers who now work at Epic, and you can't really blame them for doing it. They pay them more, and it's a little more difficult in ways, and it's a little more easy in ways when it comes to scheduling and stuff like that, and okay. that's why they kind of switched. Um, but even they think that some of it's pretty ridiculous, including the uh, what's under the most fire, which is the, um, the learning fund. Um, it seems kind of weird to them too, you know, and that's what separates – Epic from a whole lot of other things is this uh, public-private partnership in the learning fund, um, which just looks kind of weird, and the lack of accountability. So we're trying to do stuff about it. Nothing's happening about it. 
Yeah, I've been, you know, the reality is that most of your large districts at this point in the state, most of your medium districts, um, all have the capability to teach kids online if they so choose to do it. Um, but one of the teachers I was meeting with this morning, he's just teaching all the high school online English classes. Um, so this idea somehow that we need this online option that's outside of the realm of the public uh, system is is pretty asinine to me. You know, there are great charter schools, especially in Oklahoma City. Um, Epic is not one, in my opinion. So I'm praying to God that people will push that issue with their uh, with their representatives um, and make something happen. Last thing I want to ask, this is our little wrap up that we always do. Um, I tell us about tell us about the teacher who had the biggest impact on your life. Well, I already mentioned uh, Dr. Fears, huge impact, but that was towards kind of the ending of my educational career. Um, <laughs> politician answer. I remember little bits and pieces from all of my teachers. However, I will say uh, my freshman year at uh, junior high, central junior high, um, I had the blessing of being taught by uh, Claudia Swisher. And Claudia Swisher, she's a different type of teacher. She takes the time to get to know you, try to figure you out. I was, once again, a student who had a lot of energy. So, I mean, call it what you want, ADD, whatever. I just needed somebody to sit down and talk to me and have the time to get to know me and kind of unlock the love of learning that I knew I had, but no one had really found it yet. I, I was struggling. I was in the principal's office all the time my freshman year, and it, it just was, it was tough, you know? But she was able to unlock in me a lifelong burning desire to learn as much as I could, mostly through reading, um, mostly through reading novels and breaking them down. She was an English teacher. Um, so without that, shoosh, without her, no. And the really cool thing about it, too, she's also a major reason why I decided to run for office. And I'm her state representative now, too. So <laughs> it all it all circles back around. But she's a major reason um, why I decided to teach a and why I decided to run for office, and she just had the hugest uh, um, effect on me. That is great to hear. We always uh, try to end on a positive note, hopefully, uh, <laughs> about some good stories from education. Well, I, uh, it's been a pleasure to talk to you today. Um, I love talking to elected representatives because I think a lot of people don't always know the ins and outs of what's going on after they you know, cast a vote for someone. So Keep fighting the good fight. Um, we appreciate everything you're doing. Is there one more thing I can add? Yeah, absolutely. So after the passage of the Play to Learn Act, which, again, I didn't think it was actually going to be a law, um, I had was geared up to run it again because I didn't think it was going to pass because we ran into some pretty tough roadblocks, which I'm about to make a post about, um, having to do with fear. Uh, and um, now that it passed, I've kind of moved on to my real passion. My real passion has always been to make sure that kids, especially in elementary, but all the way up to at least middle school, have longer recess periods. And this delves into something a little bit tougher because some teachers agree and some don't. It's not lockstep, um, mostly because there's so many uh, unfunded mandates and all this other stuff. Do they have time to go out? You know, line them up, bring them in, you know, so on and so forth. But as I looked into the statute for recess, do you realize that the mandated amount of time for recess and PE per week is 60 minutes per week. That is weak. And so I've looked at studies and other states and I'm putting together an interim study, which if your listeners don't know what that is, it's a chance where we can really hammer home the ideas that we have that could maybe lead to a bill um, within the, the whatever, you know, um, whatever committee it is, it's in. Mine would be education. Uh, I'm looking, I've got, I've got five, it's probably seven speakers now. I've got to trim it down, but a lot of people, once I, um, uh, got the play to learn act off the ground and honestly, people don't know this, but I have a Facebook group that I created right after our very first meeting that now has 5,000 play warriors on it, mostly teachers from across the state. Um, I've, I've taught them how to positively advocate for the play to learn act. And this stays right in that it actually talks about, this is actual play. This is outdoor play. Um, so you're going to see that come out from me, hopefully, if it gets um, approved, because the speaker has to approve all studies, we'll find out soon. Um, but I've already got all the speakers lined out, and the point is, I'd like for it to lead to legislation that at least, at the very least, leads to more mandated time per week. That's the very least. Um, if you look at Arkansas right now, they just passed a pretty progressive, and this is Arkansas, a pretty progressive uh, recess mandate law with a lot of different pieces and parts. I'm using that as my model. If you want to check it out, reach out to me. 
But um, it is my, it's been my passion since day one. I've been talking to OEA and everybody else right when I got elected, how do we get more recess for our kids? And they always were like, ah, teachers, eh, be careful. With the infrastructure I set up with uh, Play to Learn Act, I'm ready to act now. So be ready for that. It's my next big push, Play to Learn 2.0. <laughs> awesome. And if people want to learn more about it or maybe try to help out, uh, just contact you, I'm assuming, through your house email, correct? Oh, yes. Email's the best. Jacob.Rosecrantz at okhouse.gov. Um, that is the very best way to get a hold of me. It goes directly to my phone. If anybody tells you it doesn't, they're lying. There's a bunch of emails right there. Um, and we can get to them right away. Plus, we have legislative assistance, so two pairs of eyeballs. Awesome. Well, once again, thank you uh, for coming on today. It's been a pleasure. Um, it's been awesome to talk. And for everyone that uh, has decided to listen to our voices for the last hour, 15 minutes, we appreciate it a lot. Make sure you guys go check out the last uh, three episodes we released last week um, and be looking. Some of those names we were talking about today, hopefully we'll be on sometime uh, here in the next week. So uh, for Teacher's Pet, this is Trey Kabler. Hope you guys have a great rest of your Tuesday and y'all have a good one.